Reading Luke 22:14 to 27. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostle reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to, who, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like them. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Well, welcome again, everyone. So good to be with you. We are currently, I guess we're kind of coming to the end of our series, Party Crashers, where we are looking at the very real party stories that Jesus attended throughout the book of Luke. These are actual parties that Jesus was invited to, that sometimes Jesus hosted, and that most often Jesus crashed by his behavior or his teachings or his radical inclusion of those around him. And we've been looking at these parties all through the book of Luke from the last couple of weeks, because what we believe about these parties is that when we see Jesus at the table with real people, we are getting a glimpse of what our God is like. That at these moments when Jesus breaks bread with outsiders and outcasts, and when he confronts religious leaders, and he creates space for people who have never been invited to this kind of party before, we are seeing an image of what our God is like and what our God is up to in the world. These parties are not just fun details to add a little texture to the story of Jesus, but they are the story Jesus is telling with his whole life and his whole work and his whole purpose in the world. Jesus is showing us what our God is like and what our God is up to. And so far throughout this series, we have looked mostly... Or I think all, all together we've looked at Jesus's, what we'll just call public parties. These are parties where Jesus is with new friends or strangers or random people or maybe like the prominent religious leader in town. These are not his closest group of people. This is an extended kind of invitation where he parties with randoms that he meets in a town, like Zacchaeus, who's up in a tree, and Jesus is like, hey, you're throwing me a party today. Let's go. In these final three stories, though, that we're going to look at, we move into a much more like private or intimate set of stories. These are parties that Jesus has with his closest disciples, with his friends and his 
family, just a handful of people around the table in intimate spaces with Jesus. And next week and the week after, as we close out the series, we'll look at two stories that are post-resurrection stories. Jesus is alive, he's with his disciples, and they are scared to death when he shows up and has a meal with them. He's like, I'm not a ghost, give me some fish. And they're like, oh my God. We'll get there. Spoiler. But before we do, today, the party that we're going to look at is often referred to as the Last Supper. It's not the Last Supper. I just gave you a spoiler. There's more to come. But it is often referred to as the Last Supper. And it is Jesus' final meal, his final party, with his disciples before he heads towards the cross. And in many ways, this meal, the one that we're looking at today, is at the heart of all the party stories that we have seen so far. That every party story we've looked at is in a way leading us to this moment. That what Jesus does here, what Jesus says here, what Jesus invites his disciples into is making explicit what these other party stories have been embodying or maybe making implicit or has been there in the subtext. Jesus is like, this is what I am doing. This is what the meal represents. This is what it is for. The Last Supper maybe is called that in many ways because it is the culmination of Jesus' parties. But what we'll see today is that it is also the beginning of another set of parties. That it is the end of Jesus' parties before he goes to the cross, but that it becomes the beginning of a whole story of parties for the early church. It defines their shared life together and becomes the practice that sends them into the world. It's like Jesus is saying, you've seen me party, here's a party, now go and party like me. Extend this meal into the world around you. And so that'll be the focus of our conversation today, is how this meal is the culmination the climax of Jesus' parties, but maybe even more importantly for us, is how it is an invitation to party like Jesus. To see what he's done, to see how he's gathered at the table, and to go and be like Jesus at our own tables, in our own world. So here's how the party story begins. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 22. Luke tells us, when the time came, Jesus took his place at the table. And the apostles, his friends, his close followers joined him there. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This meal comes in what we sometimes refer to in like church as the end of the Passion Week. So, on Sunday, Jesus is entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people are like hailing him as king and Messiah, and they're shouting, Hosanna. And then in just a few hours from this moment, those crowds will turn, and that fanfare will turn as Jesus is led to the cross as a king and false prophet. And he's there with his disciples to celebrate what is called the Passover. And Passover was a meal that Israel celebrated every single year. It was like a part of their ritual. They had seven meals that God instituted in the life of Israel to celebrate every single year. Table is not a new theme for God. It runs throughout the entire story of the Bible. And Passover remembers 
when Israel is rescued from Egypt. So they're delivered from Egypt, they're rescued from oppression and from slavery, and they're led into the wilderness. And the very first thing God does is he says, have a meal. Celebrate this moment. Remember this moment. Be a people who deeply hold the story of your rescue and your liberation and let it shape you and let it form you and come to it every year again and again to be formed into a people who have been rescued and delivered. And so every year, from that moment on, Israel would gather to celebrate the Passover, to remember who they are, where they came from, and what kind of people. And this is the moment that Jesus is with his disciples celebrating this yearly meal. It's poetic context for what is about to happen next. And I love, there's this little detail here that I just love because of what it shows us about Jesus. In verse 15, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. I just love that moment because Jesus liked being with his friends. Look, I've tried to say this every single time I've preached in different ways, is that Jesus likes being with people. He is comforted by the presence of his friends. feels so human to me and yet such a beautiful reminder. Like, I also want to be with my friends when I know something hard is about to happen. In the same way, Jesus gathers with his friends and he's like, I just like being with you. I want to be in your presence before I suffer. I'm going to endure something hard, something lonely. It's just nice to be with you before that. Jesus tells his friends that it's good to be with them, and then he says this. Takes the cup, and after taking the cup and giving thanks, this is probably familiar, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, This cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus takes the bread and the cup and says that these are expressions of my life, my work, and my coming resurrection. Just as we're here celebrating the Passover meal that reminds us of rescue and liberation, I'm now taking that meal and updating it to show you that I am on an even greater rescue mission. The table in this moment becomes an expression of the gospel, the good news of Jesus a sign and a symbol that God's love is poured out for us, that a place of belonging has been made available to us, that a seat has been set and an invitation sent. He says, this meal is a symbol of what I am here to do, of what I am accomplishing. And then he tells his disciples right in the middle of this moment, so do this meal in remembrance of me. Here's a sign, here's a symbol, here's an expression of my purpose, my work, my life's accomplishment. Now do this meal in remembrance of me. And the early church takes this command very seriously. They do this meal 
It becomes the defining practice of the life of the early church. In Acts 2, when they hit this moment, which is often referred to as the birth of the early church, the very first thing it says about the collective gathering of these early Christians is this, Acts 2, verse 42. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the community, and to their shared meals together. In the early church, this moment, this table, this meal gets defined in different ways. In early New Testament letters, it's called the Jesus meal or the Lord's meal. And by the time we get the letter of Jude, it's called a love feast, which I don't know that I would call it, but you get the gist. These meals become the whole life-giving, defining reality of the early church. They don't have Sunday services. They don't have liturgy like we do. I love this, but that's not how they gather. They gather at a table and a meal. They discuss the apostles' teachings. They talk about Jesus. They read letters that have been sent to them. They forgive. They ask for forgiveness. They pray together. They learn how to belong to one another all around a shared meal. It's the defining practice of the early church. It's how they worshiped together formally, but it also shaped how they lived together. They understand table as a whole way of life. They understood that what Jesus gave them in this moment was not just a form of Sunday worship, though it is, but a whole way of life constituted by the good news of Jesus, that God has made space for us in his kingdom, at his table, and that should shape how we live, how we operate, how we move in the world. If you've been with us for a while at Missio, you may have seen this. I just wanted to show you this picture because this is how we've tried to articulate this kind of idea here in this community. Is that table becomes the defining practice of the gathered church. But it doesn't live there. It moves from that space everywhere that we go. The early church took it into their homes with their families, and they would gather like the people of Jesus with their family. And then it would leave out of that space into their working spaces, into their neighborhoods, and they would continue to gather with people and love as they had seen Jesus love them everywhere they They believed that this moment, this Last Supper, was an invitation to party like Jesus, to extend his work, his table, anywhere and everywhere they went. Because as Jesus said, whenever you do this, you declare my death, my purpose, my love. When you gather, when you practice this, you declare the reality that I am instituting. So Jesus gives them a meal. This meal becomes the defining practice of the early church. How we live together, how we learn together, how we share life together, how we practice the story of Jesus. And I love this. We'll talk about more of this in a second. It's beautiful and it's good. But I want you to see what happens immediately after Jesus tells the disciples to practice this meal together. Because you can also see real quickly where this runs into issues. This is verse 24 of Luke 22. Jesus has just given them a meal. Just remember the context. He's like, I love you. You have a spot at this table. You belong. And then immediately, verse 24, an argument broke out among the disciples over which one of them should be regarded as the greatest. 
Can you imagine? This has got to be like a real face palm moment for Jesus. He's like, I am about to die. I just told you, you hear, you belong. And one of them is like, yeah, but where will I sit, Jesus? Jesus gives this meal. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples are like, cool, but can I sit closest to the head of the table? And here's how Jesus responds, verse 25 through 27. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, they rule over their subjects. And those in authority over them, they love fancy titles like being called benefactors. But that is not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status, and the leader must become a servant. Some translations actually use the, tra- the language of younger. You must become like a, young, like a kid, a child at this table. So which one is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves the table? And the answer to the question is the one who sits at the table. But Jesus says this, isn't it the one who's seated at the table? Look at me, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus gives them a meal, says this is what it's supposed to be like among you, and immediately they understand the implication that table is meant to define their collective life together, which is why they ask Jesus, can we have seats of honor at that table? Can we be above other people? Can our preferences, our priorities, our prejudices define our shared collective life together? Jesus' party, his way is a beautiful invitation. It is a beautiful invitation, but it challenges all of the barriers to belonging that we often create. Here, Jesus criticizes those like worldly hierarchies. Lord it over. Call yourself by fancy titles. In Galatians 2, there's a moment where Paul has to confront the apostle Peter because Peter has taken the Lord's meal and racially segregated it. So in that moment, it confronts worldly prejudices. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Christ's death has torn down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The gospel is confronting the barriers of belonging that we establish. Because it's inviting us into a collective way of life together defined as we sit at this but that is not just some external thing that happens like outside of us it is a thing that is happening inside of us jesus's table his party challenges the barriers of belonging that are in us we've seen anything throughout these different party stories is that jesus is challenging the barriers to belonging that are inside of us that we put up for our own lives or that we put up for others Because Jesus is inviting us to be like him, to live like him, to take the form of a servant. Jesus' party is meant to shape our collective, communal way of living, what it means for us to be a people. It's not just a religious meal that we do on a Sunday. It is meant to define our life together. but it challenges our own sense of self. And this becomes the like, primary struggle of the early church. You have the moment in Galatians 2 where Paul has to confront Peter, but there's another moment that I really think is worth listening to 
where the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth. And he wants to challenge them for the way they do this Jesus meal together. The text is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a new church, kind of figuring life out together. This is what the Apostle Paul says, verse 17. He says, now, I do not praise you as I give you the following instructions. You ever send a text like that? (laughs) Could you imagine? I do not praise you because when you meet together, it does more harm than good. First of all, when you meet together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. When you get together in one place, it isn't to eat the Lord's meal. The church thought they were practicing the Lord's meal. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, like, what you're doing, that ain't it. Like, you're gathering, you're having the meal, but it is not Jesus' meal. Just because you're with people, just because you opened some wine, just because you broke some bread does not mean it looks like Jesus' meal. And then this is why. He goes on to explain to them exactly why that ain't it. He says in verse 21 through 22, Each of you goes ahead and eats a private meal. One person goes hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on God's churches and humiliate those who have nothing? The church at Corinth is an interesting group of people. Corinth is a pretty diverse city. It's like a metropolitan city. And what we know about the early church in this place is that it is a diverse community that represents its city, especially in terms of wealth, people in this church who are really wealthy. There's also people in this church who are not very wealthy. And what's happened is that those folks who have more are able to control their schedules. This is one of the advantages that come often with wealth, even in our own day. You can control your schedule. You, you work hard, but you still can control what you do and how you do it. And so people who have more money, more access, more wealth in this ancient church, they get to show up to Jesus' meal early or on time. And they get there, and they start eating, and they start drinking. But then by the time that folks who have, like, farming schedules or laboring schedules who can't make it there as early, by the time that they get there, the meal has been eaten, and the wine has been drunk. So there's not enough left over for them. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on God's churches and humiliate those who have nothing? People who show up with less, there's actually even less left over for them because it's all been eaten. That's why Paul goes on to say, those who eat and drink without correctly understanding the body are eating and drinking their own judgment. Because of this, many of you are weak and sick and quite a few have died. Sometimes this moment gets translated as you are judging, because you eat the meal wrong, you get sick. Paul is saying, no, no, no. You eat the meal, and other people go hungry. You show up at the meal, you eat it, you get drunk, and then other people who don't have anything to eat, they go hungry, and they are dying because this meal is actually a provision for the life of this community. You are misunderstanding the needs of the body. You're causing people to get sick from hunger and need because this meal is for this community. I think this story is so interesting because it, to me, illustrates 
how the meal can go wrong and what it is supposed to be when it defines our collective life together. Jesus' party is supposed to be a place of belonging where we care for one another and create space for one another. Where those with more wait for those with less so that everyone has enough. Paul ends this moment. I think this is a really beautiful phrase. He says, For this reason, brothers and sisters, when you get together to eat, wait for each other. I just like that phrase, wait for one another. Care for one another, wait for one another. The way we celebrate this meal, the way we practice life together, the way that we party together is meant to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It is meant to form us into a people of mutuality who wait for one another. Who, like Christ, work hard to take the form of a servant to create space for one another. Who learn to serve one another. It won't always be easy or clean. The best parties rarely are. That's why in this community we often use the language of practice when we talk about the table. Because we are practicing the way of Jesus together. We are not perfecting it. We are practicing it. We are learning what it looks like to belong to one another. Learning what it looks like to pull up a seat at the table with one another. Learning what it looks like to rearrange the seats so that everyone can have a spot to belong. Learning what it looks like to eat food that, I don't know, doesn't look that appetizing. So Jesus says, whenever you do this meal, do it in remembrance of me. It's going to take a lot of time to figure out how to get this thing going. Let's practice receiving and giving and extending the goodness of God to one another. We all need to practice and to remember and to receive again and again Jesus' invitation. This is why after his sharp words to the Corinthians, Paul just reminds them what the purpose of the meal is. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance with me. Jesus did the same thing with the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Every time you eat it or drink it, do this in remembrance of me. After Paul sharply criticizes this church, he reminds them of the gospel. Jesus' love poured out. Reminder that at cost to himself, God has created a space for us at his table. It's a good reminder because it is a thing we have to learn. Practice that we have to develop. I have a, I think I've told this story before. I can't remember. I have two older brothers. Uh, They're my half-brother and my step-brother. They're both quite a bit older than me and they're from my dad's, my biological father's, previous marriage. And then after my dad died, uh, they lived with us until I was like 10 or 11. And then they both disappeared. And I I don't want to sound dramatic, but I don't really know another word for it. They just kind of vanished. No phone calls, no letters, no emails. This was before text messaging, but there wasn't any of that. No social media posts. 
There wasn't any, but you get the idea. And they stayed that way for 20 years-ish. And I always kind of hoped that I would reconnect with one of them or both of them. But I didn't know how, right? And so you, like, get to middle school and high school, and you kind of, like, hope that they'll just, like, show up one day and, like, drop into Thanksgiving. Or I got to my high school graduation, I was like, oh, maybe they'll just, like, pop in, like, a movie, and they'll just be at my high school graduation. Or, like, when I graduated from college, I was like, maybe I'll just get, like, a, he'll just be there. That'd be crazy. When I got married, I looked for them. Uh, so I could send them a wedding invite, but I didn't know how to find them. And by the time I got into my, like, late 20s, I just kind of resigned to the, like, I don't think we'll see each other again. I think that's just the story that is going to be the story of our relationship. I didn't feel bitter or angry. I just, that was kind of where I'd gotten to emotionally. Like, that's probably what's going to happen until it didn't. And I think I was 30, and my mom got a call one day from my half-brother out of nowhere. And he was like, hey, can I see you right now? And I'll tell you that story later. Because uh, it's wild. But we have an interaction. Meet my half-brother for the first time in 20-ish years. And then my mom is like, hey, you should come and do Christmas with us. And I was like, hold up, mom, that's weird. <laughs> this is a stranger at this point. So the second time in 20 years that I see my half-brother is Christmas Eve. This is Christmas Eve. This is so recent. This is like Christmas Eve 2022. Comes to church here. Christmas Eve service. He sits right here with my mom. I don't know if anybody would know that he was my brother. He's like 10 feet taller than me. <laughs> we all go to dinner. He hangs out with my friends, my family. And then he stays at my parents' house, my mom, my stepdad. And Tori and I always stay there that night too. So it's basically like my strange brother, my mom, my stepdad, who I don't think he's ever met, my wife, who he's never met. We're all going to just live together now. <laughs> Because we're going to wake up. We're going to do Christmas together, right? And so then that's the thing is we go to bed, we wake up in the next morning, and we do all of our Christmas things together. Like all, you know, if you have a family, you probably have Christmas traditions, right? We eat what my, my wife lovingly calls egg fart souffle first thing in the morning. Then we drink some mimosas. Then we do some presents. Then there's always a Nerf war punctuated by my mother screaming about the glassware. I'm like, Mom, if you care about the glassware, don't leave the Nerf guns out. I don't know what to tell you. Then at lunch, we eat chili because we love our bowels. And then, and then it just kind of, you know, dissolves in the sleepy time until we eat again, because that's kind of the thing that we do. And my brother was invited into all of this, right? He's a new, kind of like a new person stepping into this, like, set of family traditions. And he's invited into all of it. And I think it's a beautiful thing to invite him into, to play Nerf War, <laughs> to eat chili, to eat egg fart souffle, to open presents, to gather together, to tell stories. But it's also a very strange thing to invite someone like him into the space. It's weird. It's awkward. As much as I had longed for this reunion, it is strange to try to, like, enculturate somebody into a, a, an already living family dynamic, and it's just as strange as it was for me, I imagine it was way weirder for him. He didn't know these people. He didn't know my wife. He doesn't know my stepdad. The last time he was here, this family had just been broke by tragedy. Now he's stepping back into it again. What? And he has his own rituals, his own traditions. He even, I don't even know if he likes egg fart souffle, but it's there. 
The reason I tell you this story is I think to me is this like wonderful, strange, awkward picture of what Jesus' table is inviting us into. Is we are estranged siblings. Who, if you look at us on the outside, it does not make sense how we would possibly belong together. I'm here, he's 10 feet taller, he's driven a truck his whole life, and I have more degrees than I know how to count, and my hands are soft. And yet we are family, trying to figure out how to do life together at this table because we believe that something bigger than all of our divisions unifies us in the goodness and grace of God's love. And so we're going to figure this out. Here's my rituals and my traditions and my preferences and my habits, but you know what? I will throw all of them away to create space for you. If I really believe what I say, and if I really want you here with me. I'm going to engage in this awkward, beautiful, messy work of learning how to belong with you of learning how to wait for you at the table. And so I believe that is what Jesus is inviting us into with all of these stories of parties, with this last supper, and with the invitation to practice his meal everywhere we go. We are invited to belong. And we are invited to wait for one another. It'll be strange and messy, and a bit awkward. It will challenge our preferences and our styles and our food choices and our seats that we've assigned ourselves at the table. But the best parties always do. And just as they challenge us, they also remind us that we are right at home. Right where we belong. To God and with one another. Monsieur, this is what we practice when we come to this table. And it is what we practice as we leave this table and head into the work. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, he says to us, Come party with me and then go party like me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this meal and all the meal stories that you've told. Moments of table where you challenge and confront and unearth our sin and our pride. Moments where you include and welcome. Moments where you disrupt and disturb. Thank you that all of it is different windows and angles into your work of creating a kingdom where everybody gets to be united in you. So Jesus, today, would you help us to receive it? Would we put down all the things that are barriers to our unbelonging or to others? Would we receive our place in you and would we make room for others? Would we know that you wait for us? And would we wait for one another? And God, would you send us from this place into our neighborhoods and into our families and into our workspaces, wherever it is that we go, to live the life of your table everywhere. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.